never say die! Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 168 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and I'm glad that you're joining us for our weekly examination, this time into movies about a giant hole into the center of the earth and the men who traveled into it. First, Pat Boone looking for his missing Scottish accent, and then Brendan Fraser looking for his missing post-mummy career. Ooh. That's below the belt, but true. <laughs> it, it, it it died when Ben died on Scrubs. Aww. Aww. Wah, wah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't have to watch that show. Yeah, so yeah, that's the only—that's the only thing worth watching—is that one twist, and I just ruined it for you. <laughs> yeah, nothing else in Scrubs worth it. Nope. I guess I'm going to start watching Chicago Hope. Oh, Jesus, Ugh. why? How would you do that to yourself? Yeah, Ooh. no one deserves that. That's it's like Scrubs, right? You know what? I think just popped up on thinking of terrible TV, which just popped up on Netflix. I think Cop Rock is on there now. Oh my gosh! Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Let's be careful out there. <laughs> I love that fucking show. <laughs> All right, if that hasn't tipped you off, this week we're doing Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, the 1960, 1958, 1959, right? 58. Around there, 58, 59, 60. It was, according to IMDb, it was released January of 1960. Maybe okay. it was made in 58. Okay. Who knows? Right. Whatever. Pat Boone knows. And the 2008 Brendan Fraser. Uh, thing that came out then. Excellent information. Yeah. <laughs> and if you'd like more sources of excellent information, you can go to the Podcast Collective. You can't go here, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you can find such shows on the Podcast Collective as the Bad Parenting Podcast, On the Block, No Hope for Humanity, The Coffin Joe Cast, Joel's Own the Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, Dating Baggage, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy. I am Salt Lake, Minton Boxcast, Tales from the Hard Side, The Dog and Do Show, The Empty Rant Podcast, and The Rad Dad Radio Hour. Heck yeah. And if you're looking for our uh, show on Saturdays at noon, you can find us on Geek Life Radio, right after the Turnbuckle Throwbacks. We haven't mentioned those guys in a while. Well, that's true. Is that, still, is that still true? Yeah. Because uh, I know they, they changed their uh, schedule over Geek Life. Yeah, I think I think we're still on after them. What time zone? Uh, Central. Central Standard Time. Hawaiian. <laughs> Central Hawaiian Standard Time. All right. We like our bread Hawaiian, but our time Central. Ooh, I love that Hawaiian bread. God. Spam. <laughs> All right, so if you like Hawaiian bread, you can find our older <laughs> shows on uh, iTunes, Blueberry, Let's Stitcher, do a Hawaiian bread show. Yeah. Hawaiian bread. We are bread. no longer uh, led into by the turnbuckle throwbacks. No. We are now the first show on Saturday at noon, and uh, there isn't another one on until uh, 5.30 where Dark Doctor Who Dark Journey comes on. Oh. Well, if you're not doing anything all day Saturday, you can at li- least listen to us at noon. And just put it on repeat. Right. Over and over and over again. <sighs> well, that's thrilling. If you'd like to get in <laughs> touch with us, you can call us at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. I think Mike creeped himself out. I did. <laughs> You can also always reach out to us on Twitter at 40go14, or uh, visit us on Facebook by searching for 40 Going on 14 Podcast. Right. And hey, we have a thing coming up. We have a thing? We have a thing. February 11th, 2017, LodgeCon. 
going to be a large. Yeah, it is a thing. It's going to be out in Bourbon A, Illinois. Uh, it's being run by uh, one of the friends of the show from uh, from Gen Con, and uh, it's a game convention out there. We are going to be there with uh, Instant Game Show. Uh, there's free access to the vendor area for general attendees, no fee. They're going to have guests such as the Sun Brothers Studios doing uh, seminars on how to kickstart your comic RPG ideas, and they're being sponsored by Serenscape, which is a digital sound effects for tabletop RPGs. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes. Or is, it, is it Sirenscape? Sirenscape? I, thought it was I don't guess Sirenscape. Sirenscape. I'm, I'm well, seriously asking. I don't no, know. I'm going to go with Sirenscape because I pretty much pronounce everything wrong. So, Well, not to be, <laughs> can, not to be confused no. with Sirenscape, which is downtown Rockford. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. I like that. <clears throat> also, this is the big Cutting edge commentary. Uh, Skateboard Jesus likes it. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you, my child. Now let's shred. The the uh, big announcement, Dan the Bard is going to be playing out at uh, LodgeCon. Yes, out at LodgeCon, not in a moment. No, no, definitely not in a moment, because I would be really creeped out if I turned around and there was a bard behind me. Be- <laughs> we don't have musical guests on this show. No, no good, Yet. good for that. <laughs> Hello, is it me or... Oh, no, never mind. I don't know if he does that. We should maybe request it. But, Let's hey. be careful out there. <laughs> Dude, that cop rocks. So, yeah. So, uh, if you'd like to meet us, we're going to be out in Bourbon A, out in uh, February 11th, 2017, for LodgeCon. So, search for LodgeCon, and uh, you will well, find three us. Three quarters there. of us will be there. Yeah, Patrick's going to be there, because he lives in Texas. But uh, you will be in the amazing burg of Bourbon A. I hear they have a Fuddruckers. <laughs> You don't well, have to sell me. Time, I was already there. That is where bourbon's made, right? Yes, we'll go with that. Good. Mm. I'm still in. I like Lamb gives sandwiches. you bourbon, make bourbonade. Bourbonaise. Bourbonaise. Mm. Can I got a ham and bourbonaise sandwich? <laughs> or a bourbonaise and peanut butter sandwich. Ooh, no. Oh, man, that's a throwback. <laughs> that is a throwback. Uh, a turnbuckle right. throwback. Do we have... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about that time. It is totally about that time. <clears throat> this week in music, movies, and TV. All right, so this week we have chosen the theme to be January 14th, 1960, the release of the original. Journey to the Center of the Earth. And apparently an acronym of the week. No. I just didn't have time to type it out. I just noticed it wasn't there, so I had to type it really quickly. Pat is a hunting pecker. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just wanted to say pecker. Jerk kid. Anyway, yeah, see, music. I type that out. This is what happens. I, I have typos in real time. This is, <laughs> this is thrilling for the podcast listeners, I'm sure. It's amazing. Yes, the sounds of Patrick typing. Listen, I'm waiting listen for my to me type. Joel, music. Uh, music. Laugh, you fools. <laughs> the number one song in the land is El Paso by Marty Robbins. Get a rope. That is always um, the number one song in my heart. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not allowing commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely love this song. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, it used to be my midnight song when I DJed. Every midnight I'd play it. Dude, that it is like the best story song ever. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen the video that Steve Martin did to it? No. 
Steve uh, Martin did a video to it. Yes. Hmm. I'm not. I'm hmm. not gonna. I'm, I'm gonna post the link in the chat and I'm gonna put it on our page because it's one of the best comedy scenes out there. Does he wear a arrow on his head? All I'm going to tell you is he's the only human in the entire thing. I'm in. <laughs> on January 14th, Elvis Presley was promoted to sergeant in the U.S. Army. Oh. Now, he enlisted, right? Yes. Yes. He didn't look happy about it, though. On January 22nd, Michael Hutchins, who would later become the lead singer of NXS, was born in Sydney, Australia. Oh, now I'm sad. <laughs> Why, NXS? Michael? Is forever he... tied to Michael. It's like the first person I think of whenever I hear NXS is Michael. Well, that's the only reason why I stepped outside of the actual week and put, included it was for Michael. Um, thank you for reminding me that one of my favorite singers ever died jerking it and strangling himself. Oh, no problem. That's what I'm here for. And that's, it just pisses me off. It's not like he was an unattractive dude either. I mean, he was could have gotten anybody. No, he's going to hang himself in the closet and whack it. Not yeah. David Carradine or anything. Mike would have jerked it for him. Yeah, he just could have called me. I mean, shit. We all got to go somewhere. <laughs> that might be mine. <laughs> you, you, you and Mulder. Yeah, I was going to say, you and Mulder. <laughs> Man. Uh, moving on. Gladys Alberta Bentley was an American blues singer, pianist, and entertainer during the Harlem Renaissance. This don't look Her career good. skyrocketed when she appeared at Harry Hansberry's Clam House in New York. <laughs> Hold on, let me read that. When she appeared at Harry Hans- Hansberry's Clam House in New York in the 1920s. I don't want to go oh, to Clam House. Gonna... You're going to need a lot of that accent for this paragraph. As a black lesbian cross-dressing performer, she headlined in the early 1930s at the Harlem's Eubangi Club, where she was backed by a chorus line of drag queens. She dressed in men's clothes, including a signature tuxedo and top hat, played piano and sang her own raunchy lyrics to popular tunes of the day in a deep, growling voice while flitting with women in the audience. On the decline of the Harlem speakeasies with the repeal of Prohibition, she relocated to Southern California, where she was billed as America's greatest sepia piano player and the brown bomber of sophisticated songs. She was frequently harassed for wearing women's clothing. She tried to continue her music career, but did not achieve much success as she had in the past. Bentley was openly lesbian early in her career, but early in the McCarthy area, she started wearing dresses and married, claiming to have been cured by taking female hormones. Yeah, I was wrong about that. It doesn't need the accent. Do it over again. But <laughs> This time with feeling. <laughs> Gladys Alberta yeah. Bentley. So this is a woman, a black lesbian woman in the 60s, pretty much thumbing her nose at all of society. And... I figured she was due to get some attention because that's yeah, pretty ballsy. Yeah. yeah, becoming famous while doing so. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So did she die? Well, eventually. In oh, did I not include that? Oh, yeah, yeah. she died in 1960. Okay. Yeah. She, she died on January uh, January 18th. Okay. I'm like, I was waiting for it. I was all ready yeah, for it. I'm like, no, it was supposed to be there. I just forgot to include it. All right, cool. So now movies for Josh. Yes, movies. The number one movie was Ben-Hur, a 1959 American epic historical drama film starring Charlton Huston. Ben-Hur had the largest budget, $15.175 million, as well as largest sets built of any film produced at the time. Not to be confused with the sequel, Dun-Hur. Dude. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. Released on January 12th, Scent of Mystery was a mystery film that featured the one and only use of smellovision, a system that timed odors to points in the film's plot. It was the first film in which aromas were inter- integral to the story, providing important details to the audience. See, now that's neat because there's rides at Disney that do that. 
Like there's yeah, that's true. Yeah, they they have like little misters that they give off scents. Yeah, there's one. Um, it's in Epcot where it's called Flight, and you sit in this thing, and it literally picks you up and like makes one of those um, an IMAX screen, and it makes you feel like you're flying, and you fly over an orange or- orchard, and then you start to smell oranges because they they keep spraying the different scents out in the air. So he they've got that at uh, every carnival too. Only the only scent is vomit. Oh. Yeah, I, went on I, thought, the, uh, I thought you were going to go with the misters that gave off sense joke. Well, I went to the stroke experience and I smelled toast. So did you guys, by the way, <laughs> Never mind. Hear, hear that they're going to be... <laughs> just going to let that one lay there, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to watch that one die and walk away. But did you guys hear about the new movie that's coming out about uh, Caitlyn Jenner slash Bruce Jenner? It, it's called Ben Him. Okay, so multi-award winning actor Oliver Platt is born on January 12th. I smelled toast. <laughs> he starred in A Time to Kill, Flatliners, and the acronym of the week, TTM, which of course is Teutonic Testicle Merkins. It's the classic documentary about the Vikings who had to replace their ball, ball hair with little wigs. If I, I smell toast. <laughs> Nobody? I, I, I think we all responded. Very appropriately to that. Yeah. Fuck you guys. <laughs> I was thinking I mean, about Flatliners. I appreciate the Merkins reference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I knew I had to explain Merkins because I know you'd know what they were. <laughs> if you have to explain it, though, then it's not funny. That's what I've been told. It's not true, but that's what I've been told. No, it's true, Joel. <laughs> TV. <laughs> the top shows are. What was TTM? Oh. Oh, the Three Musketeers. Oh, oh okay. that's right. That was a pretty good one. I like that one. I did, too. I like Flatliners, too. Oliver Platt made a career out of being the likable sidekick guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and you didn't... Was He, he was in Sneakers, wasn't he? Yeah, he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. He's a lot of stuff. He was on the West Wing. He was on... Um, the East Wing. TV. <laughs> That's our Joel. <laughs> the top shows are Gunsmoke, Wagon Trail, The Andy Griffith Show, Wagon Trail, and Have Gun, Will Travel, Wagon Trail. Lots of westerns on TV at this time. Yep. The ones that weren't mentioned: Bonanza, The Rifleman. Oh, <laughs> Andy! Yeah. And uh, January twenty fifth, the series "The Kate Smith Show" begins a six month run on CBS. Oh, you is... let him off easy this week, Pat. I know. Who is Kate Smith? She is the known as the first lady of radio. She was an American singer and best known for her rendition of Irving Berlin's "God Bless America." So, not the same one. As it was a Charlie's Angel. No, she was definitely not. I'm looking at her picture right now. She was not Charlie's Angel. She was possibly <laughs> was all, Char- possibly was all three of them. Secretary is what she was. <laughs> yeah, Charlie's dirty little secret. In there the you go. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Yikes! No, she maybe was, just Charlie. <laughs> she was Charlie. <laughs> I think she ate the angels. Damn it! <laughs> that was better than what I was going to say. <laughs> is that toast? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. All right. That's all I got for TV. That, that looks kind of like Aunt B from college. Oh, oh, but Andy. All right. Moving on to sports. On January 12th, <laughs> I got a lot to read here. So. Got a running start. I, I gave myself so much to read. I don't, I'm looking at this wall of text, and I'm not happy. What did I do? On January 12th, NBA, shut up, NBA legend Dominique Wilkins was born in Paris, France. His nickname as the human highlight reel belied his ability to wow on the court. 
in his nine All Star <laughs> appearances and two Slam Dunk championships, got him a seat in the NBA Hall of Fame in two thousand six. You are mm-hmm. not prepared. <laughs> I started cracking up. <laughs> I knew what you were laughing at. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> World of Warcraft on the court. <laughs> Al Frederick Al Joyner was born January 19th in East St. Louis, Illinois. Oh, I can't believe I just did that. Oh, my God. I can't believe I just did that. Oh, fix that in post. No. Oh, I'm ashamed. You should be. I've been been away too long. It just came out. I didn't. Oh, Oh. I'm going to start that over. Al Frederick Al Joyner was born January 19th in East St. Louis, Illinois. Ew. The 1984 gold medalist in the triple jump at the Los Angeles Olympics. He was once the husband slash coach of three-time Olympic gold medalist and world record holder Florence Griffith Joyner. Yeah, buddy. He's the brother of three-time Olympic gold medalist and world heptathlon record holder Jackie Joyner-Kersey. Yeah, buddy. Man, that's a fast family. That's a really complex name family, too, man. (laughs) Right? L. Frederick L. Joyner, Florence Griffith Joyner, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. Journey, 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 journey. Well, yeah, I mean, if you are related to the joiners, you, you keep a portion of that name if that's your thing. Well, yeah. if you hang out in East St. Louis, you're definitely going to get a heptathlon. I mean, the, jo- the joiner name is known, you know, from in Illinois and all over. Yeah, I thought you were going to go back. Let me fix that again. East St. Louis, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was too embarrassed that I actually said it to make a joke out of it. That was disappointing. Anyway, moving on. Charles Theodore Chili Davis was born January 17th. He is a Jamaican-American former baseball player and current hitting coach for the Boston Red Sox, a position he has held since October of 2014. He was a former outfielder designated hitter who played for several teams in his career. Davis was a switch hitter who learned to bat left-handed as a professional, and he is the first ball player born in Jamaica to appear in a major league game. The nickname Chili comes from a particularly poor bowl cut that led to children teasing him that it looked as though someone had used a chili bowl to cut his hair, and the nickname stuck. Wasn't he on the Jamaican bobsled team, too? What, no. What's the difference between a chili bowl and any other bowl? We see there were actually beans coming out of the bottom of his haircut. <laughs> <laughs> so, Point made. Continue. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why it had to be a chili bowl. I, I didn't come up with the nickname. So, if you want, I don't know if you want an answer for that. You had to. No, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. John Jack LaViolette was a Canadian professional ice hockey player who played nine seasons for the Montreal Canadiens Hockey Club and was their first captain, coach, and general manager. He was one of the first stars of ice hockey. Born in Belleville, Ontario, LaViolette's true place in hockey has less to do with his scoring prowess and more to do with his role as the true founding organizer of the Montreal Canadiens Hockey Club, one of the most successful in the NFL or NHL franchises. He was their first player, coach, and general manager in their inaugural 1910 season, and he went on later to die this week. Period. <laughs> well, that's sad. Yeah, I want to thank whoever kept fucking around with that paragraph the whole time, Mike. That wasn't me. <laughs> I only I was I thought Canadians was spelled wrong. I didn't know it was E N S. I thought it was A N S. For the hockey team, it is the E N S. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and then I was just see the question mark in there to see if you'd go. I'm Ron Burgundy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, this weekend. Yay! Now, 
journey to the center of the earth. And that's where I'm going. Bye, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are talking about the center of the yeah. earth. Patrick is actually going there. Yeah, I took this. I took this week seriously. I'm heading to the center of the earth. I'm not going to be here for the rest of the show. So sorry, listeners. I got to go. Peace out. Hail to the man of geology. Herber, 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 Patrick Whaley doesn't do what Patrick Whaley does for Patrick Whaley. Patrick Whaley does what Patrick Whaley does because he is Patrick Whaley. Words to live by. I'm really confused right now. Okay. <laughs> All Bye, right. Pat. So, <clears throat> All right. So, Journey to the Center of the Earth, either 1958 or 1960, depending on who you talk to. An Edinburgh professor and assorted colleagues follow, whoa, an explorer's trail down an extinct Icelandic volcano to the Earth's center. Uh, this and we is... learn how many licks it takes. <clears throat> how many? What? I think you might have watched to get to wrong. the center of the Earth. Oh, so uh, this is directed by Henry Levine, who is known for uh, obviously Journey to the Center of the Earth, but also such classics as Where the Boys Are, the, oh, yeah. the Wonderful Worlds, the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Uh, God, what are the wonders of Aladdin? Jolson sings again. The remarkable Mr. Pennypacker. And then the nice little bank that should be robbed. That sounds like a movie we need to do. The nice little bank that should be robbed. He also did something called The Warriors, which is not what I thought it was. So, all right. But it had Errol Flynn. So, uh, it was also written by Walter Reich. Screenplay um, is known for Ninochka. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, Gaslight and Niagara. This actually, that's, I'm impressed by that. That's a lot of good, uh, good writing stuff there. He There's also, a lot of talent in this movie. <sighs> there really is. I mean, this guy also did the remarkable Mr. Pennypacker. Say that five times fast. Uh, the cast oh. starring a very young Pat Boone who was shirtless and forced to sing at any given moment. I, I have to say, though, number one, I was shocked when there was singing involved because I didn't know there was any music in this film. And, well, like that. And then the other thing was, I didn't even realize who he was. I just thought he was kind of good looking. Well, and that was when I was watching it, I couldn't tell if there was singing because Pat Boone or because 1950, 1960s. I think it's a combo of the two. Yeah. You know, it was like, since we got him, we might as well have him sing. We would have, you know, we're going to sing anyway, so we might as well make it Pat Boone. So. Right. It, was, it just felt really out of place, especially as you get further into the movie. And, uh, you know, it just didn't quite, it didn't quite gel. But I think you're right. It was part, here's our opportunity because we got this, you know, singer, super stardom guy. And then you've got it, the 50s happening. So Right. I mean, you watch a lot of movies from the time. They just break into song because that's that still kind of figuring out what film is different from the vaudeville tradition. Right. Well. It's like if you watch the uh, director's cut of Psycho, there's a lot of singing in that. That's not true. <laughs> All right. So it also has one of my favorite actors, James Mason. Oh, yeah. From A Star is Born, Lolita, and North by Northwest. Yeah. I mean, he and he's got uh, what, a yellow beard where he played Captain Hughes. He's got a great. Oh, uh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah he's in everything. Boys from Brazil. Heaven, oh, Heaven Can Wait. Where he plays Mr. Jordan. Man, I didn't realize he... I mean, I recognized him, but I didn't pick him out of those other... Man. Oh, yeah. He's I mean, he's one of those guys where you... He's been in everything, but you have to... He's almost... Oh, crap. I just lost his name. Uh, the guy who played Commissioner Gordon. The guy who played Zorg. Gary Oldman? Gary, He's kind of like a precursor of Gary Oldman. Just kind of a, a 
kind of blends in and, and creates a character that you kind of lose the fact that he's an actor. Right, right. He he jumps and he's you you finally take a step back and realize that this dude has been in just about everything. You just don't recognize it because he's really good at playing these different characters. Uh, also, Arlene Dahl. Yeah, gorgeous <laughs> Arlene Dahl. She she was one of the heartthrobs of the era, mm-hmm. and you can see why. Oh yeah, hell so, of a lot of charisma. Beautiful woman. Yeah. Also, you know, lots of, you know, uh, showed up on One Life to Live, was on the TV series Riverboat. Uh, most of her career was in the 50s and 60s, and then until we hit, like, the 70s, and she started doing the TV spots. But a very young Diane Baker as Jenny Lindenbrook. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was still working up until just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1913, uh, two, 1913, 2013, The Surrogate TV movie. But she's also been in most recently stuff like Law and Order. Uh, it, she's been on, well, The Nanny. She's kept her. I was going to say, she's but... probably best known in modern era for uh, being on House. Oh, that's right. Yeah. House also been in Silence of the Lambs, The Cable Guy, uh, The Net. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because The Net's a great movie. <laughs> Then we have a Thayer David as Count Sacknus. Did I say this right? Sacknusum? Sacknusum, yeah. Sacknusum. Yeah, he was in uh, Rocky, the Iger mm-hmm. Sanction, and uh, one of my favorite uh, mid-60s, 70s shows, Dark Shadows, where he played Ben Stokes, the uh, vampire hunter. So, But yeah, lots of, uh, I mean, again, another one of those... Uh, he, you know, who he kind of looks like he looks like he could be a uh, Phil Folio's brother, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah. And then you go on to the character <clears throat> actors Peter Ronson and Robert Adler. Uh, Adler is better known as that guy in every western ever. Yep. And then, and, oh, go ahead. This one's on you. Oh yeah, Alan Napier, whose name immediately jumped out at me because I was like, that is Alfred from Batman 1960s. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally him. Yeah, unfortunately, he meets a dire and grisly, grisly end. But uh, so <clears throat> some trivia on this one. Pat Boone didn't want to make this film, but he was talked into it by his agent. And years later, he stated that he's glad he did it because of the regular residual checks it brings in and because it's the movie he's probably going to be best remembered for. Yeah, I mean, this was a blockbuster of its time, and it made a ton of money. Oh, hey. yeah. Real quick, just back up for one second. I am trying to remember what happened to Napier in the film. Nothing. He was the dean. Oh, okay. I was like, somebody said Grizzly End, and I was like, wait a minute. Are we talking about wait, him? I don't remember him dying. I thought, no, wasn't Napier, who was the guy that was carrying around the guy's stuff? Uh, that was Robert Adler. Oh, okay. I got them I got them mixed up. It was the mustache that threw me. Yeah. <laughs> no, Alan Napier was the dean of the university, who you see at the beginning and then uh, again at the end. Got it. Okay. I was confused for a moment. Thank you. Carry on. Certainly. So, Joel, you carry on with the trivia for me. I want to find out how much money this made. Okie dokie. Um, the Dimetrodons. Dimetrodons. <laughs> Keep up the tradition, Joel. Yes. In the movie, <laughs> we're played by a large type of lizard called a rhinoceros iguana. It is about three to six feet long and is kept as a pet in many places. Dimetrodon. I'm going to say it that way again. Killing me, Smalls. Was a type of synapsid reptile that reached about 12 feet in length and lived in Western North America, which in a lot of the movies of this time when they did this type of, um, you know, laying over this smaller creature to make it look bigger as some sort of monster doesn't work. 
but in here it really felt fairly natural through most of it outside of a couple of close-ups and was used in kind of a cool way i thought yeah yeah and i thought when i was watching it that maybe the frills on the diametrodons were uh attached like they were just regular iguanas so it's interesting to me that these were actually that's just kind of how they look they look like dinosaurs oh neat it kind of felt kind of bad when they when they smothered that one in red oatmeal <laughs> well they were really chewing on that one it was hard to tell if they had gotten some sort of like prosthetic one that was full of meat or whether they actually had one that was being eaten yeah so here we go the this was made on a budget of 3.4 million dollars in 1959 wow it grossed so big budget movie for the time <clears throat> yeah it grossed 10 million and then over uh rentals it made another 4.8 million so 14.8 million dollars on this one. That's just from IMDb. That's not from the numbers or anything, but uh mm-hmm. still for a three point four million dollar movie in nineteen fifty eight, that's some big cash. So um up next in trivia we've got uh the professor's name in the original novel in the French language was Otto Lindenbrock, a German. In the movie it was changed to Oliver Lindenbrook, a Scotsman. The name of his assistant Axel was Caledonized into Alec. This was done because of historical hindsight, as 19th century Scots had become known as the best field geologists, with Germans preferring lab-bound geology. I found that super interesting that they actually decided to go back and change the setting because it was more historically accurate. That's actually pretty good on them. <laughs> yeah. A more drastic change had already been made with the first anonymous English translation of the novel when the professor's surname became Hartwig and Axel became an English student named Henry Lawson. Hmm. Hmm. Ah, We did the same thing. All right. And then Gertrude the Duck won a Patsy Award. (laughs) Gertrude deserved it. What what the hell is a Patsy Award? Uh, Uh, Oh, are they still giving them out? I don't know. I don't know. They, it is the Picture Animal Top Star of the Year. Oh, the very first recipient was Francis the Talking Mule. <laughs> and a ceremony hosted by Ronald Reagan. Neat. Well, of course, bedtime for Bonzo. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, so here's here's a question for you. When was the first time you guys saw this movie? A couple days ago. Days ago. Really? You too, Joel? Yeah, I'd never seen it before. Wow. And, and that's one of the things I love about this show because there's a long list of movies that I always feel like I need to see at some point because of where, what they're, you know, the place they hold in the history of film. And I wouldn't necessarily see them if it wasn't for this show. And I, I was really glad I got to finally see it, actually. This may have been the 10th time I've seen this movie. Wow. Uh, I remember watching, you know, this, this is a maybe a sh- old Chicago thing, but. I uh, remember watching it on Family Classics on Channel 9. Did, it, did you guys ever watch that? It was I'm like from the, Missouri. <laughs> okay, yeah, it was the guy from that hosted not Ray Rayner, the guy after that that hosted the Bozo show. That probably would have been Channel 9 then. Yeah. But um I'm trying to remember his name. Uh but the, yeah, the guy who ran the, who hosted the Bozo show, which was the Ringmaster Ned? No. Anyway, but he would sit down and they would have – he'd be sitting in this, like, red velvet wingback chair and with the, this book laid out. And originally the show was done by Ray Rayner. It was Ray Rayner's Family Classics. And he would have the book 
out in front of him, and he would open the book, and it would have the beginning words of the book, and then the the movie would start up. And every Saturday, they would have family classics, and I saw uh, Moby Dick, I saw this, I saw Fantastic Island, um, all these like old school kind of literary based movies that would show up on uh, on this show, and I saw this one a bunch of times. So this is it for for old school movies. This is one of my favorites, not just because of Gertrude. <laughs> I didn't know what quite to think of it. When you get to the opening scene, you've got all the singing, you've got uh, the f- doting fiance, and kind of the slapsticky. The scientists don't know what they're doing. Stuff oh, the, going on. The exploding. Yeah, it starts off rough. Well, and there's a whole lot of them just kind of being absent-minded, not paying attention. Not actually being very good scientists. Oh yeah, like the one guy watching the 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 conversation happening while he's pouring in the flammable liquid into the furnace. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it it, it did. It kind of had a, a little bit of a rough start because I mean, as I had commented when I was watching it in the chat, that it was almost an hour into it and they hadn't even like started on the quote unquote journey. Mm-hmm. They were kind of sort of on the way, but. Um, once they got into the actual scenes where they were underground and I mean, obviously you could tell it was a soundstage or a set or they were whatever on a location somewhere, but once you kind of lost yourself in that, it's, it's kind of like Charlie and the chocolate factory where it's just kind of this fun, imaginative world. And, um, I found myself really kind of enjoying it for that reason. Yeah. And I thought that for the time, the effects, they weren't cutting edge for 1960 but they were effective on their budget right right i mean it was the best sets that michael's uh craft supply could build um <laughs> if i mean the like the one set where everything looks like it's wrapped in uh plastic wrapped in like ra- plastic wrapping paper um, so well and i think part of the effects budget had to be split because there was such a variety of different uh environments they had to pr- portray through the entire thing yeah so even if they put significant money into this, you've got the technological limitations of the time, and then they only had the money to go so far for visual effects. And in order to follow the book as closely as they did, yeah, they had a lot to show, and I think they did a pretty good job of it. No, I agree with you. They did a, they did do a great job on this. Um, they did the best that they could with the effects, and in some cases, you know, it got kind of kind of wacky with the giant mushrooms and the uh when he when they're in the uh the fountain room and they find the first reason to get pat boone shirtless is when he's taking the taking the bath uh they get oh yeah <clears throat> and that's the other thing it's like they get really close to getting really risque for 1959 like when he's when pat boone's in there he's shirtless he's taking a bath and there's just that mushroom that cuts off his junk from the camera yeah <laughs> yeah, and then later on, um, Arlene Dahl when she, I mean she's starting to get, I mean, getting a little uh, busty by the end of it. Well, yeah, she had to discard her stay. Yeah, well, that's okay. The duck got it. But uh, but no, I mean the the sets were fantastic. The one I mean, like you said, for the time and the whole scene where he, uh, where Pat, uh, sorry, James Mason Lindenbrook cuts off. He takes that those two little crystals and causes the the whole wall to collapse, you know, that was kind of goofy. I mean, and what people understood as science, uh, here's the thing. <laughs> First off, I think I tweet, I sent this out on a, uh, on our chat when I was watching it, the, the, the ducks quack echoes. 
Do you, Mythbusters. I, yeah, Mythbusters. Yeah. Do you know, you know that one, Josh? No. The, Mythbusters did a thing that uh, uh, Ducks Quack does not echo. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> but... Oh, and you can't uh, slam them too hard for the science based on a book from 1905. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, actually, from the late 1800s. It was 1905. Jules Verne was dead by then. Yeah. But no, it's... Uh, 1864 was the book. Damn. Wow. Uh, that's just some great writing right there for as old as it was. I mean, he for as much as he got wrong, he did get a lot right. You know, like having to have well, breathing apparatuses underground... The idea of the cranking lanterns. And, and some that. of it you can't prove, so. Yeah. But, but, um, but no, what, what do you think your guys' favorite area? Like, it was almost like a, a like a video game. You have your water level. You kind of <laughs> had a lava level. And this is the, this is the theme that carries over into the 2008 version, too. Uh, what, um, what, what was your favorite section of it? Hmm. Probably Atlantis. It was probably the most involved set. It was interesting. They're uh, at the end of their rope. Yeah. Plus, they had to recreate Atlantis basically out of their imaginations. And then everybody climbed into the uh, cancer bowl to escape. Yeah. <laughs> what? Everyone, that, that whole bowl that they escaped in was all made out of asbestos. <laughs> I must have missed that part when I was watching it. Quick, everybody uh, into the cancer bowl. Um. Or the red oatmeal will get us. That's right. Mmm, red oatmeal. It's delicious. I don't know. I, I for some reason, I, I like the interaction um, when in the scene. Well, I like the part which included mainly because of the interaction, but the level where, if you want to call it that, where uh, Pat Boone is on his own and he um, is it. He falls through the like salt. Oh yeah, the salt. Uh, the quicksand. Yeah, yeah, it's like the salt was loosely packed, but there were two levels where if it was disturbed at all, it would like fall down another level. Mm-hmm. And then he gets, he gets, uh, or he meets up with, is it Count, how do you say his name? Snack? Count the bad guy. Yeah, they are our antagonist who uh, is channeling Orson Welles so hard. Yeah. And and then it goes into the whole thing about you know we you're going to be my servant now and all this and Pat's like whatever just kind of <laughs> walks off gets shot you know if you could find me they could find me I'm out of here but that whole sequence was just kind of it was just kind of fascinating to me and and at that point I was really getting invested into it because you know I kind of found myself feeling like a little kid a kid again watching it kind of like ooh that's kind of cool what's going on there you know and Count Seknesum is, is uh, uh, defeated by pocket salt. I know, right? He really he let reacted out quite badly. a little. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. Well, that may be that may be his one weakness. Good for uh, James Mason for picking up on that too. Well, that and and when he's really hungry for goose. Yeah, that was messed up. He had to know that uh, that you've got the giant Icelandic guy who's refused to kill him. Uh, you don't kill his pet duck. Yeah, that was the only movie that he's ever been in. Mm-hmm. Peter Ronson. Is it a yeah. Hans he was a uh, uh, Icelandic truck star. Oh, nice. What yeah. about you then, Mike? Uh, it's got to be the lizard part. I'm a, I'm a sucker for giant monsters. I mean, because everything gets so by the books on that part that you, it's like the, they've got the repeated image, them pushing the, pushing the lizard out of the hole, them falling down. She screams, falls, gets a rope twisted on her foot. She falls. 
know, it's it's got all that all that great um uh green screening from the from the fifties and sixties that I love. You know, and then they've got you know, as as the giant lizards are cannibalizing the one that got stabbed in the neck, they quick run and get the get the raft out to the water and there's like six of these giant things right there just completely ignoring them as they run away. I I the giant lizards, give me this and the scene from uh there's also the other one that that I enjoyed is Mysterious Island, which yeah, giant bees. Oh jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck everything about that. Oh, right? giant bees and they capture you and they throw you in the cells from the beehive and then they start covering it up with wax. Yeah, but that one's cool because it's got a lot of cool. Uh, I think it's got uh, Harryhausen stuff in there. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, What I found interesting before you even get to the journey, uh, the actual expedition, uh, I didn't expect to have so much time spent with the uh, scientists cutting each other off at the knees to be the first to make the giant discovery. You've got them being captured and thrown in the duck feather storage, and then uh, the guy who did that to them is murdered. Mm-hmm. That's how they end up with uh, Arlene Dahl, who's the widow of Doctor uh, Professor Gothenburg. Yeah, and she she sucks it up pretty quick on that after her husband gets uh <laughs> gets killed. He's dead, and and I love how Pat Boone discovers the body. He's just like, oh, oh. yeah, that that slap uh, once again a little bit slapsticky. Mm-hmm. Lifts up the cover, yeah. dead body. All right, cool. And then you get that three second. That delight. Yeah, but no, it's, I mean, the, the, I, I also like the interaction between, uh, Arlene Dahl and James Mason in this too. I mean, uh, one thing I left out of the trivia. Oh, apparently she was a huge diva on set and, uh, their icy relationship was, uh, genuine. That was pretty much how the actors were. Ooh, well, that's impressive then. <laughs> Channel what you know, huh? It's, but yeah, no, uh, but no, that's, I think she was really good as the, as I would say the, not the, she's definitely not a, uh, princess needing to be rescued, but as a hero, actual heroine in the movie, you know, she holds her own pretty well. Yeah. And she goes very much from, uh, statuesque, uh, ladylike, uh, widow to almost like perils of Gwendolyn by the end. Mm-hmm. Laura Croft to murder. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a lot, like all of the like torn clothes and her hair's down and yeah. And that's I mean the uh one one of the other things I was watching it with the girls when they hit to that magnetic center part uh when when uh, Hans's gold tooth comes flying out of his mouth those of the girls are like wait a second. You know <laughs> gold's Science. not magnetic. What are you talking about? It's a magnet that only works on gold. We must be at the center. Ah, mm-hmm. fucking magnets. How do they work? Heck yeah. Now, what did you think of the Count as being the villain? Uh, he was a little much just because, despite everything they went through, he just had this imperial kind of demeanor where he was completely unhinged from reality. Yeah, his com- his consistent... uh Claiming that this was his land. Yeah, and he's just yeah. giving orders when he's in no position to. Personally, I, I probably would have beamed him with a rock as soon as we got the gun away from him. <laughs> no, right. I like when I like when they have the uh, the trial and uh, Pat, uh, not Pat Moon, but uh, James Mason's like, "All right, you're condemned to death. 
here, shoot him. And they're like, I'm not shooting him. You shoot him. You know, in the meantime, it's not like anybody would have found him at the center of the earth. I know. In the meantime, he wanders off. It's like for being the villain and the guy who's trying to kill them, they don't really pay too much attention to him because he wanders off to the lake. He wanders off and he eats the duck. In which I do have to say, Count Sakisum, or how Sakisum, whatever his name is, he's pretty damn good for uh, defeathering and cooking a goose. Because <laughs> that took no time at all. Right. It was a pretty quick turnaround time. But yeah, but then when Hans tries to kill him and he leans on the poorly stacked rocks. <laughs> Giant paper mache rocks. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of rocks, you had the, the pre-Indiana Jones being chased on a tunnel by a giant boulder scene. That's true. That was good stuff, though. I mean, that was, that. I mean, that for considering the fact that that was a giant styrofoam uh, uh, boulder, that was <laughs> right. a pretty good effect. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought they, I mean, the money that they used was well spent in terms of how they uh, designed the sets and, and kind of allotted it so that they got the most out of their the money they put into it, which was a hell of a lot. Now that you guys told me that, uh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's also cool that while they have their slapstick moments and their duck comedy to lighten the mood throughout, they don't ever stop taking the ridiculous or fantastical elements of the adventure seriously. That's all played straight which I find refreshing. It's something that uh, is missing in a lot of modern movies. You don't have the cheeky wink and a nod at the camera, Mm -hmm. which I've come to hate about modern film. The self-awareness thing? Yeah, it's like, yeah, we know this is stupid. The sort of I've come back to it again and again on this podcast. I hate when a movie apologizes for what it's trying to be. Yeah, this one, I mean, they, they, they did play it very close to the book. I mean, it comes in at... God, almost two and a half hours for this one? Uh, a little over two. A little over two hours. Right. I mean, they two definitely points. took their time to uh, to make sure they got everything they can as right as they could possibly do. I mean, the... the if, okay, another thing I want to call out on. If Pat Boone wasn't down there with James Mason and the rest of them, he wouldn't last two seconds. First off, he falls down the salt hole. And then, hey, here's a random mushroom. I'm going to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was waiting for the next scene just to have Pat Boone tripping balls. <laughs> oh. Dude. I would I would watch that. I'm going to go watch that now. Pat Boone tripping balls. <laughs> that's, that's his next album. That, um, that's where that metal cover album came from. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. I remember when that came out, I was working at the record store. Um, well, I think what Josh was saying is, is kind of why I lost myself in it and found myself really enjoying it was because like I said, they, despite the, the era and the sets and whatever else they were involved, you know, they, they didn't not take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're going to make a movie about a ridiculous concept, commit to the concept, especially if the book was already popular, you're not actually risking that much. Yeah. People want to see what they read and what they had in their imagination come to life. Yeah. And these sets must've been huge. Yeah, I mean, not Ben Hur huge, but no, no I mean definitely for the era. Yeah. yeah, I mean they spend the whole time climbing around, crawling through them, you know, through the paper mache rocks and all that. But <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, it has been easily, I want to say at least six to ten years since I've seen this, and I still love it. It's, I mean, James Mason is so scientifically cocky through the whole thing. Well, and his speech at the end is neat, where he basically falls back on his uh, 
training as a scientist, saying a scientist who's accomplished something and cannot prove what he's accomplished has accomplished nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, question. Yes. Uh, before we get to the wrap-up on this one, what did your girls think of it? The girls, they liked it. I mean, they, they've been through enough movies with me. I mean, like, I'll, I'll make them sit down and watch a bunch of old movies all the time. I mean, that's how they got into the Marx Brothers. You know, it's one of those where, you know, it's like, hey, sit down, trust me on this. And it, it, there's a payoff in the end. You know, they, they thought it was fun. They enjoyed it. They just didn't, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it's going to be something they're going to be going back to. Well, yeah, and it does have old movie pacing. Yeah, it totally does. But I didn't find myself like some of the other films we've watched having to pause and go do something else and come back to it. I watched it all in one sitting. Oh, yeah. See, and I just wondered because because of their ages and, you know, granted, it's a little different than a lot of the the kids these days that have never took the time to watch this stuff. You know, I just wondered if it kind of held up for them. And and that's kind of where I was coming from. And it's good to hear that they did like it. You know, they did. That just shows that it it stood the test of time. I think that's as good a place as any, unless Mike, you've got anything else to say to uh, head to the break, and then we can. No, I just talk I, about the remake. Yeah, let's uh, let's take a break, and we'll talk about the Journey to the Center of the Earth, two thousand and eight. I hear Absolutely it was naked. Yeah, I hear it was in three D. It was. <laughs> bum bum bum. Be back in a bit. I smell toast. All right, we are back, and we're going to talk about Journey to the Center of the Earth, 2008. Uh, This is on a quest to find out what happened to his missing brother, a scientist, his nephew, and their mountain guide. Discover a fantastic and dangerous lost world in the center of the Earth. Uh, This was in 3D, I hear. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that in the uh, trivia. Yep. Now, this was (laughs) directed by Eric Breving. Known for such visual effects as The Day After Tomorrow, Pearl Harbor, Men in Black, and Lost Boys. Yep. But he also directed the video game version of of this sort of, an episode of Xena, and the Yogi Bear movie. So kind of a resume that's all over the fucking place, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's his, his whole thing is pretty much all visual effects. So that kind of explains some stuff. We'll, get, we'll wait till we get to the trivia. This is also written by Michael D. Weiss for the screenplay, uh, known for such classics as The Butterfly Effect Part 2, oh. <laughs> Hostel Part 3. Oh, I'll, God, that was terrible. And I'll always know what you did last summer. Jesus, it's like a resume of horrible sequels. Jarhead 3, Scorpion King 4. And they keep going. U.S. Seals 2, <laughs> Octopus 2, River oh of Fear, and a production manager on something called Curdled, which I really don't want to see. Curdled? Uh, That's the, the Quentin Tarantino produced film about the uh, the crime scene cleanup girl. Yeah, that one was actually oh. pretty good. Oh, really? I thought yeah. it was about bad milk. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's not like it was Scorpion King 3 that had Lou Ferrigno in it. So, I don't know. That's true. 4 was terrible from what I saw the preview. So, yeah. So, this also, the other writer on this is uh, Jennifer Flackett, known for such classics as Madeline, 
Nims Island, and 14 episodes of Beverly Hills 90210. Yep. Yep. There you go. Hey, don't, don't, don't poo-poo it. It's not, we'll get to that. Never mind. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, if you don't want me to poo-poo it, I'd better just sign off now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pat. <laughs> All right. Now, this is a complete cast of Brendan Fraser as Trevor Anderson, Josh Hutcherson as Sean Anderson, better known. Very young Josh Hutcherson. I know, right? Uh, better known as uh, Peter the Bear in all the Hunger Games movies. <laughs> yeah. Peter Malark. Yes. Peter. Peter. Peter Malort? Yes. He smells like the Chicago River. Mm. Anita Bream? Wow. Saying that right? Yeah, she's, I mean, she's done some stuff. Mostly known for being on the Tudors as Jane Seymour. But, uh, wow. She was also in Dylan Dog, which was... Honestly, I think pretty dang good. It was underrated, I and gotta say. It's it's not as good as most people will like, but it's better than I expected it to be. Yeah, I, ex- I expected it to be like super duper awesome, but I wasn't disappointed in what I got that was better than a lot of other films that are trying to be that. Right. Now, it's interesting that she was in a movie called Elevator, but not the one that we would know of from M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong. Wait, oh, no, he no, produced it. No, he did one called it. It wasn't called Elevator. It was called Devil. Devil. Yeah. Oh, that's he, right. He yeah, produced. It just took place well, in this, an elevator. This one is different. It's it's about uh, uh, a bunch of people are trapped in an elevator, and one of them has a bomb strapped to their chest, and they're uh, like on Wall Street. It, it sounds interesting. I kind of want to see it. Hmm. While you're at it, check out Blackout. That's another elevator-based movie. Racist. Uh, she's what? also known as playing uh, Sally. In the 2005 Doctor Who Christmas special, The Christmas Invasion. Mm. Oh, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. And uh, after that... Seen that one. Seth Meyers as Douchebag Professor. Which he plays perfectly. Yep. I don't know. The rest of these, I mean, like, the rest of the credits are like gum-chewing girl. Right. Frank. Oh, I wanted you to tell me who Garth Gilker played. Garth Gilger. That's well, we haven't gotten there yet because we're still to uh, fourth billing of Seth Meyers, yep, as snarky scientist guy. Yep. Then uh, Jean Michael Paré as Max Anderson. Was he the like central casting slacker lab assistant? Yeah, I think. Cut and paste. Yeah, I think he was. Say, dude, a bunch. And 10 seconds of screen time, go. Right. Uh, Jane Wheeler, Elizabeth, I don't... Oh, that was uh, his sister, right? Yes, that's uh, uh, Sean Anderson's mom. Right. Uh, Frank Fontaine, who was the old man who owned the vineyard in the end. Yeah, we're we're really digging deep, because really, uh, top billing is CGI. Right. (sighs) Wait. Wasn't Max Max Anderson was uh, Josh Hutcherson's dad? I thought. Oh, you're right. Max is so. Uh, who's central casting? His he name. must Ben Giancarlo Calbatiano. Uh, maybe. I don't think he's listed here. Journey to the center of the earth and something called fries with that. Yeah, so it could be. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Which that's like a twenty dollar uh, name for a two dollar actor. Yes, that's that. You're right. He was the lab assistant guy. Gum chewing girl. 
I don't even remember her. I mean, I, I thought this was sort of noticeable for the fact that you've got the three principal cast and then almost no screen time for anybody else. Yeah, because Josh is right. The CGI is the real central. I mean, when you have an effects guy directing a movie, what do you expect? Um, so we'll do some trivia here. When Trevor lights up the flare on the wall, uh, flare and the wall sets on fire because of the magnesium, he's supposed to burn himself. In the scene in the movie, it was in the second take of the day, and in that take, Brendan Fraser actually did burn himself. He was holding the road flare too perpendicular and too close in relation to the wall. The flames bounced off the wall and blew back onto his bare hand. The scream he makes was a mix of real pain and acting, and the production was shut down for a few days because those things are freaking hot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, after that, when Trevor opens the box of stuff belonging to his long brother, he pulls out an odd wooden item, declares he doesn't know what it is, and sets it aside. It is a Holmes stereoscope, a device designed in 1861 by American physician and writer Oliver Wendell Holmes for the viewing of so-called stereo cards. A stereo card is a postcard which has a left view and a right view photograph mounted alongside one another. When viewed through this stereoscope, the photographs are merged into a 3D image, which is later adopted for the Viewmaster. Oh, I love my Viewmaster. Now, these home stereoscopes, this was interesting to me because uh, my mother owned one. It was an antique. Oh, from really? the late 1800s. Oh, sweet. So we didn't have any stereo cards, but uh, I grew up with one of these around the house. Now, and what what's interesting about that is the same visual of that is uh, the the same, I guess, optical illusion is the same way that they have like the uh, Oculus Rift and everything works. Mm-hmm. You know, the the concept has not changed in over a hundred years on how they make you see three D out of out of a two D image. So I can't see three D very well. Well, that's why I don't like driving with you, right? So uh, people would buy stereo cards for their entertainment, just as we do. We buy DVDs. Thus, the joke is made in a 3D movie. Here, the movie is in 3D. Not having an idea what a stereoscope is, which makes 3D's images. Dun dun dun. Yeah, it's an effects guy joke. Yeah. Those are always a big hit at parties. Mm-hmm. Joel got it. I did right in the kisser. All right, so uh, when Trevor cleans his house to prepare for the arrival of his nephew, he places some plates on top of a book called Exploring the Deep Frontier, Adventure of the Man in the Sea, written by Dr. Sylvia Earle. Dr. Earle holds a record for the deepest untethered ocean dive at 1,250 feet to the bottom of the ocean. That's kind of scary as all crap. Yeah, no kidding. That just makes me feel uncomfortable just reading that sentence. So, also, independent filmmaker Paul Chart from uh, American Perfect in 97 was originally signed to write and direct the picture and pen the original script. Chart left the project, however, after a decision was made to shoot the film in 3D. Uncomfortable with the possibility that it would become more of a theme park ride than the epic ed- action-adventure film he envisioned. Well, and- fortunately, we saw his fears were completely unfounded. Oh, I know, right? There wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't a minecart level in this. The the Jules Verne novel was apparently one of his favorite pieces of literature. Chart was ultimately replaced with effects specialist Eric Brevig and heavily retooled to emphasize the new 3D format. Look at my yo-yo. Now, uh, we're going to get to this part in a second, but I want to touch on what you just said about the uh, minecart ride. Uh, Even though I'll save my thoughts on the the overall film till we get to the actual end of the bit, 
that part was how impractical was that mine shaft in general geology was pretty good physics not so much i mean some of those things went down for miles and yet uh, yeah I, I, I yeah it was definitely a theme park ride on that one part just that one part well <laughs> because we're talking about it i just needed to say it real quick because I, it, as i was watching it because i've seen it's not the first time i've seen this I uh, I forgot how incredibly over the top that was. So anyway. Yeah, I, I think that this piece of trivia really sums up. I, I, when I saw this, it made me kind of mad. I, I originally was just kind of like, okay, that was a forgettable CGI over heavy action film that had some actors I like. And it was mediocre to bad. When I saw that it could have been awesome, I got a little pissed off. I'm with you on this. Especially after watching, after watching the the first one, where they worked so hard to generate these characters and to make the characters have a background, and you know, and for a nineteen nineteen sixties effects, they did a great job on this. And this one, it's all CGI, and they have absolutely no character development whatsoever. Everybody is a cookie cutter, whatever they're supposed to be, you know. Uh, um. Brendan Fraser is the kind of uh, goofy professor, not all there, a little bit out of touch, kind of forgetful type of thing, always kind of rushing around. Josh is the angsty teenage boy who's being moved from where he likes to be to another place. And Yeah, the resolution of his daddy issues happen precisely on cue as they're supposed to. Right. I think you're know, being a little hard on it, but I don't disagree. Don't get me wrong. I don't disagree. But And I think that does kind of point back to the original, where they did balance out the special effects with the storytelling. Yeah, and I, at the beginning, I was a little irritated. I was like, okay, this is very different. They're They're changing some things. And then some of my initial fears were sort of sidelined. It's like, okay, they're doing a different take on this. Uh, we're not doing a re... It's not strictly a remake. It's a universe in which the first film is an adaptation of a book which exists in the world of the second film. And the revelation is that the book, everything that happened in the book was real, even though in their world, the book was fiction or was thought to be fiction. Right. Yes. So I was actually okay with the setup and the framing. And honestly, it was only when they started leaning so heavily on the special effects at the expense of everything else in the movie where it all fell apart for me. I was all right with the minecart thing. I'm fine. Like, fine. All right. It's an impractical, uh, what's the word? It's impractical mine. You know, we see it all the time. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom had the impractical mines, you know, with the car, with the, the, the tracks going all over the place. Fine. It's a action movie staple. Where I started losing it is the glowing birds. Mm. I had issue with the glowing birds. They've been down there for millions of years, and they look just like sparrows. But they're luminescent. And they glow. And mm-hmm. one of them is going to follow you around for the rest of the friggin' movie. It's like Gertrude. No, it's not like Gertrude. Gertrude had a hell of a lot more personality than that damn bird did. I don't disagree. I'm just saying. It was their take on Gertrude, I think, or was supposed to be. Yeah, it was just kind of half-baked. Uh, unfortunately, it seemed like the original, though I found the not uh, the parts before the journey, 
very interesting. It really came into its own once you got into the journey. For this one, it's like as soon as they start heading down, it's like they forget that they're supposed to be telling a story. <laughs> they're just going to be showing us stuff. It's like, here's another effect sequence. This will be in the video game. Buy it. Yeah. As they're heading down, as did the film itself. I don't know. I mean, it, it was a fun, it was a fun little adventure ride, but yeah, I mean, it had its, this level and then this level. And, um, I mean, they even touched on some of the exact same things that happened in the original. Well, of course, cause they're all basically on the same source material. Um, but they kind of blew past it, like the giant mushrooms, for example. Um, and I don't think they could have done the minecart thing in the original, nor would they have tried. No, I don't think so. I don't think I agree with you. They wouldn't have tried because honestly, I don't think the minecart section was in the was in the book. <laughs> Jules Verne is rolling over in his grave. Which brings up the question: Out of us, how many of of us have read the book? I have not read it. I have. Okay. Do you remember just me? Uh, just just you. I mean, I I I take that back. I've read it, but it was so far long ago that I don't recall it. Well, and that's about fair as far as, like, I read it around the first and second time I read Treasure Island. Okay. When I was pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking, like, fifth and sixth grade. So, but, um, but no, I just, they, I wish Brendan Fraser would come back and start doing action movies again. I want to see him in The Mummy again. I want to see, I want to see that Brendan Fraser. I don't want to see Brendan Fraser becoming a sidekick. You know what I mean? He should, he, this should have been a good action, action movie, but it just, I mean, literally it, it was almost like a ride at Disney World. You know, you're going to come around the corner. Now we're going to go through here. And now you're going to get chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex, yeah. <laughs> but don't worry because it's going to fall through the ground, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think of anything that jumps out of me that I can, uh, you know, say, well, that was a good part, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. And I just watched it yesterday. That tells you how much I guess. And it's the second time I've seen it. So I guess it tells you how much it sticks with you. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was more to say about this because I do like Brendan Fraser. I, I I've always found him charismatic and I almost think he is uh, in, he's great at acting, but he's incapable of script evaluation. What do you mean? Like, he, you look at some of the stuff he's been in, and it seems like he's almost a miniature Christopher Walken, where he just acts in whatever's put in front of him. Oh. And he, he has a difficult time telling the difference between this script will produce a good movie and this script will produce a bad one. <laughs> uh, school Ties or Journey to the Center of the Earth 3D? Right. Uh, mm. Journey sounds good. I don't know. I mean, anymore. I mean, he's kind of fell out of favor. So I don't know how much more he'll be doing on a regular basis, which is unfortunate. I, cause I agree. I, I, I'm a fan. I, uh, I, I do find him very charismatic and when he's on the screen, I enjoy watching him do his thing, but yeah, he did kind of go to the shotgun school of acting where if he's going to get offered a part, he'll play that role. Mm-hmm. Some to better effect than others. But, um, well, <sighs> I wish we can go back to the salad days of Georgia, the jungle. <laughs> There were so many scenes in this where you just had all of the characters screaming and waving their arms while CGI happened around them. Or the falling down the hole scene. Falling down the hall, falling up the volcano. I I just noticed it's like, okay, we're totally just over and over again. You're showing at least two of the three characters 
where you can tell that the actors are in just a completely green or blue room, just waving their arms and yelling mm-hmm. because 99% of the scene is CGI. Right. And not even good CGI. The, the dinosaur was pretty good. Uh, I don't know. I thought the head was cartoonishly oversized. It looked like a cartoon dinosaur to me. Well, I like it cartoons. So was a cartoon dinosaur. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it was supposed to be a cartoon dinosaur like Last Action Hero. <laughs> oh, I don't think you guys realize that Brandon Fraser was actually all CGI. That explains so much. Oh. Yeah. They didn't even have him in the movie. He just he did the voiceover work, but yeah. That also explains Dudley Do Right. Oh jeez, I totally forgot about that. I've seen that one too. Oh, that's terrible. Um the falling down the hole scene, though was I almost wanted to do the math on that. Like, oh my God, we're going to hit, it's going to be like a water slide. I'm like, yeah, you're going to hit the goddamn water slide at terminal velocity. You're going to turn to jello. Once again, geology, fine. Physics, not, not great. So much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how nice would it have been to have a fourth character that was unlikable that got caught on, you know, the spikes that they were talking about? Dude. Hmm. Okay. I got dark. Never happened. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Okay, no, I can't go ahead. I'm afraid to say anything after that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, well, you want to talk about the CGI. I guess get to the whole scene on the ocean with the fish. Oh, yeah. And of course, his mom, for some reason, his phone starts to walk then. Well, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Why did his phone work all of a sudden? For slapstick comedy? So the fish could eat it. Yeah. I mean, you look at that scene, you look at where he's hopping along the magnetic rocks, and you look at the minecart, and they practically could have printed along the bottom of the screen, this will be in the video game. <laughs> you know what would be funny is if the adventures to the center of the earth, whatever, the video game that that he, the director also did, if none of those scenes were in it. That would be funny. There, Wait, there really was a video game, wasn't there? Yeah, there really was a video yeah, game. He and he, it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Turns out that the video game is where all the plot happens. <laughs> it's just them sitting around a desk talking about their adventure. <laughs> what do you think we should bring with us? I think we should bring lanterns. It's like a pick-a-path book. This actually sounds... Actually, I'm looking at the, the chapters of the game. The Journey Begins, Askiam, the Front Gate, the Communication Center... The Village of the Giants, the Diamond Mine, the plot thickens, wrapping it up. It actually sounds better. At that Just the breakdown of the walkthrough on the video game sounds better than the, the script for this. Huh. So, but no, I mean, it, it was very video game-ish. It was very, you know, adventure land at Disney World. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily want to dog a movie just for that. It's just you need to need a shooting script. You can't just have a little bit of story at the beginning, a little bit at the end, and the entire middle hour of the movie could have just been done with storyboards and no script. Mm-hmm. You know, but for all things being said, I mean, it was still, I still found it to be fun. And, you know, for, for when my, my kids and I watched it, when it, it came out on video, you know, a few years back, you know, they had a good time with it because it was just kind of an over the top silly adventure movie that spawned a sequel with the rock, which I, I own, but I've not actually seen. Is that um, the one where he plays a ukulele? No, he no. plays a character named the diamond King. <laughs> right. Yeah. The ukulele was played by Steve Buscemi. I think, um, see what I did there. I see. 
but this, yeah. So, I mean, despite all the flaws, I mean, if you look at it, who it was made for and, and the overall film itself, it was still fun. I mean, I didn't find myself kind of being bored by it or, or kind of losing interest in it because of the overuse of CGI. I, I, the scene with the rocks, I was a little bit kind of like, okay, now we're getting completely stupid, but it was still better than some of the other junk that's out there, Transmorphers. Oh, you can't compare this to Transmorphers. <laughs> I just did. You can't, because Transmorphers was is an entirely different category of movie. There's nobody in that movie that you went, Oh yeah, I remember them when they did the when they did some better movies, because none of them ever did a better movie. Right. Well, if they would have offered Brandon Fraser as part, he might have taken it. Yeah, no kidding. <sighs> God. I think he was in the sequel. He has a new movie coming coming up in 2016 called Behind the Curtain of Night. I would love to see him make a comeback. Well, it says the story of a man who sees his past lives from before he was born after being declared dead for the second time. And it's got Brendan Fraser, Don Olivery from American Hustle, uh, and Marsha Cross, who was in, what was she in? Oh, she was on um, uh, that uh, spinoff of Melrose Place. Or no, she was on Melrose Place. Never mind. That was a spinoff of that other show. Quantico. She's in Quantico, which I don't know what that is. But um, but no, I mean, I, I was expecting a sense, a, a, a point of campiness with it, because that's kind of like Brendan Fraser's thing. His movies are always kind of campy. They're always kind of like The Mummy, even though I think it's, a gr- I love watching it. It's a fun popcorn movie, campy, good adventure flick. This was wasn't even campy. It was just like you said, just levels. So, all right. Given the ta- the uh, the choice between the two, you have one Journey to the Center of the Earth movie to watch for the rest of your life. Which one do you take? Fifty eight for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's really a contest there, but no, I'm down fifty eight fifty eight version for me. But what if the oh here you go? What if they would have traded Pat Boone's part with Brendan Fraser in fifty eight? Well, then it would just be like a tablespoon of sperm, and that wouldn't have <laughs> sung very well. What? Uh, what about the nineteen eighty nine one with Kathy Ireland? I did get a chance to watch that one. I really didn't want to though. Kathy Ireland and Emo Phillips. Are you kidding me? Nope. It was. Uh... And then we go to the center of the earth. It totally. Ha- it took only the title and the general idea, and otherwise, like completely throughout the plot. Really? What? Uh, how do you know that? Did you watch it? I did not watch it. I, I knew that there were other versions, so I, I had the Wikipedia tab open so I could talk about those just for a moment. Oh my god, Emo Phillips as Nimrod. There- yeah, there's a bunch of other people in here, but really the only names you would recognize are Emo Phillips and Kathy Ireland. That's ridiculous. But to to go back for one second, when you talk about uh, Brendan Fraser and how enjoyable he is, and in the Mummy, you know, with his his what is it, Rick O'Connell, I think is his name. I mean, he really is capable of of captivating an audience, and and that character is a great character, despite the fact that the movies kind of suffer from some major issues of with CGI. I, I would pay to watch him play that character over and over again. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I know it's uh, fun for people to shit on CGI. My problem isn't just that the CGI was bad. It's that the CGI was allowed to dictate the direction of the movie. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's true. 
because I can handle subpar effects, and I, when used appropriately, I have no problem with computer-generated effects. But you don't say, okay, we need to highlight these, so all this story shit, we're going to throw it out, and we're going to put in more effects. Right. It kind of makes me wonder if, if given the chance, if we could get this uh, um, uh, Paul Chart to get money to make his version... I just wonder what it would have been like, you know, maybe not with the same people in it, but to see that version, because when you have somebody who has a passion project like that, you're going to get good results because they don't want to make crap. Right. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings. The uh, you got a great example in the difference between Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit films. The first was a passion project for Peter Jackson. The latter, he was thrown in at the last minute because, uh, uh, not del Toro, uh, a uh, guy who did uh, uh, the Devil's Backbone, Benicio del Toro. Is that Del Toro? I no, thought that, they, I thought he was the actor. No, oh Benicio, you're talking about Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo, yeah, Guillermo del Benicio. Toro. Yes. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro uh, backed out of the Hobbit at the last minute, and uh, Peter Jackson was like, "Okay, I guess I'll take another pile of money." Yeah. Which, in 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 defense of of those films, it, at least it gave a sense of symmetry to the entire story or the entire series. But yeah, no, it, it definitely felt like the studio was controlling that more than he was. Yeah. And you can see the difference between when something other than having a passion for the original material is what is allowed to dictate the way the film is made. It's the reason I use those as an example. Well, and I think that the 58 version and this version are, are probably a similar example because at that time they were, they were excited to have the money to make the film that was based on this book that everybody loved. And here they were like, Hey, we got this uh, 3d technology. Let's kind of use the idea. Cause this would be fun. And they pooped it out. Not in 3d though. Cause nobody wants to see poop in 3d. Well, don't say no go way. down that road. I think, I think Seth Rogen's new movie is called poop in 3d. Poop in 3d. <laughs> I think his last movie was called poop in 3d. I still haven't watched that yet. Oh, wait, are we talking about sausage party? Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I have it, but I haven't watched it yet. Anyway, so. All right. So I guess we, we know who, um, you know, where we stand on these. I guess all of us would wa- rather watch a little uh, Pat Boone and James Mason action than. Uh, <laughs> all right. That came out. Who com- wouldn't? That came out wrong. <laughs> James Mason was one hairy mofo. Uh, That's the uh, thing. They ran out of budget for hair because James Mason used it all. That's why Pat Boone was so was so slick. There's he another, some for his pits, but that there's was another sentence I never thought I'd go through my life saying. Pat Poon was so slick. So next week, Joel, what do we got on on tap? Well, it looks like we are finally going to do the show that everybody's been waiting for: Full House and Fuller House. You got it, dude. <laughs> Cut it out. Oh my god. So that's what? What you say? Uh, yeah, we're 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 gonna do it. Yeah, I. I'm actually oh, sort of looking forward to the now. I am rude. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the to the now because I'm thinking it may be like we were just dogging on a little bit, but I think it may be a little self aware. But in the same time, I have never seen Full House. Really? Really? Huh? I watched the hell out of that. Yeah, never watched. Uh, never watched an episode of Full House. Mostly for Lori Laughlin, but. I still watch the hell out of it. 
Um, from what I hear, the the newer version it starts out with uh, kind of the uh, you know the old cast, but kind of leans in more to creating a new generation of characters. I don't know. It's got a second season, so who oh. knows? Well, that's cool. Ooh, excuse me. All right. Yeah, we're doing so, a little full house action, and then uh, and then something else after that. Yeah, if you uh, want to share your thoughts, if you saw either the 58 Journey to the Center of the Earth or the new special effects 3D version, uh, you can give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep, and uh, don't forget, if you are going to be around the area of Bourbon A on February 11th, come out to LodgeCon and see... Uh, Three, you know, three quarters of us there, and uh, we're also be doing an uh, instant game show and giving out prizes. So, coming out, check it out on, online. LodgeCon in Bourbon A, Illinois, or as Pat would say, Bourbonaz, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> Bourbonaz. Now I really want a chicken sandwich. Oh man, bourbon mayonnaise on a chicken sandwich sounds fantastic for some. That actually does sound pretty good. <laughs> I'm all telling right. you, that's you've all made I a could thing, Joel. Whenever you said that. <laughs> all right. Well, good night, folks, and remember, don't take any blue glowing birds from anyone. That's terrible advice. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think I was ever in danger of that. All right. Ready. Pardon me. Good timing, Lucy.